Thank you. Wow. It's been great. I'm sorry it's going to be such a flyby visit as well, because I'm going to be heading back at the end of this session, but really enjoyed being with you. Um, you want to turn in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. And this session, PJ said, could you speak on 10 things that amaze me most about God? So I'm going to try and do that. Um, I want to introduce it, introduce like 10, 10 things by, uh, by looking at a chapter that embodies a confusingly overwhelming picture of God more than any other chapter I know. So what, it, what I want to do is look at 10 paradoxes. The things that actually amaze me most about God aren't attributes on their own. They're things that you cannot logically hold together about God. So the things that amaze me most about God are the things where you say, God is this and he's also that, and I don't understand how that works. And so I'm going to look at some of those, which I hope will be helpful. But I want to do it by looking at Ezekiel 1, and I may have to get some people out to dramatize exactly what Ezekiel is talking about here, mindful of the fact that the after-lunch session is always easier when pastors are made to clown around at the front to some degree. So, Ezekiel chapter 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, whose names were Donnie and Simon and John and Matt. Okay? And they came out and became four living creatures, if you would. Um, sorry. So some of you only went, oh, when you, heard, when you heard them come out. I thought you would... Take for granted that it wasn't actually in the text that the names would... How many Donnies are there in the Bible? No, no disrespect. Okay, so four living creatures. And from, so that, bear in mind that these are in the middle of a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth. Okay, And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. Uh, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands... And the four had their faces and their wings like this. Their wings touched one another. So could you now get in a position where you all touch one another? No, they all touch one another. So Simon's wings touched John's. So how are you going to do that? <laughs> this is like that game where you all sort of entangled. Okay, so we'll find out that's not quite right, but we'll see it in just a moment. Um, and their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward. So you now realize you're backwards. If you're going to be, you need to flip the other way around. So each one of them went straight forward, okay, and their wings touched one another, good, um, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four also had the face of a lion on the right side. Who's the most lion-like looking person? Donnie. Okay, so Donnie, could you just pivot around so they can see the lion? Okay, the, each had the face of a lion on the right side, the four side, which means that you are the face of the ox on the other side. And the four had the face of an eagle, which is... Simon, which means that Matt is also the one of human appearance, which is lovely. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. So, I don't think they're interlocking quite as much as you think they are, so maybe, that's right, okay. Um, you won't have to leave them there for long, but just for a second. Um, each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. 
So this is the sort of euphemistic use of wings that we have often with the angels. They cover their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. So I think what's meant here is that the four of these guys with their outstretched wings, so step a little bit further back, so you're like a larger square, if you sort of mean. So your, your wings are full, fully outstretched like that. That's it. And I think what it means is that whenever the Spirit goes this way, all four of them don't have to turn. They all move with Donnie this way. And then whenever the Spirit goes this way, they come this way and don't collapse the mic stand and the like and so on. So and then, but this is all within a fire, gleaming metal, flashing lightning and so on. And I'm not going to read all the bit about the wheels, but as we go on to the bits of the wheels within the wheels, we find that not only this, but they also have, if you like, a wheel in front of them, which has got another interlocking wheel sideways, which means that the wheels are also moving this way or moving that way. So I think that's what's going on with the picture of the wheels. But I'm, you can put your arms down now for a second because they'll get tired. Let's skip down to verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight towards one another. Good. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. So this expanse, D.A. Carson calls it an enormous upside-down crystal walk, which I quite like as an image. An exp- I don't know why he thinks it's walk-shaped, because it doesn't say it is, but it's sort of an expanse that is vast, made of crystal, right the way across the living creature's and bear in mind, until now, like the vision is doing almost cinematography. Because until now, all we know is that there is a cloud with lightning and fire, and these four creatures and the wheels. And we're zooming in. And then it's like, suddenly, Ezekiel notices, there's an expanse above it, made of crystal, as far as the eye can see. And every time these guys lift their wings, it sounds like an army on the march. This is a terrifying image. And then he says... And above the expanse over their heads, which we didn't even know had an above. We just we kind of almost imagine we're under it. But he's now almost zoomed right back so we can see over it. Above the expanse over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated. This, I've never done this when I've done this illustration, but I wonder if we could actually have somebody seated on the throne. Because you guys are big and strong men, so I'm, I'm sure that's possible. Um, Ben Franks, do you want to do you want to come on out and just? I was looking for a guy who is probably light enough for these four guys to carry, but I know well enough to get away with. So Ben, can you come out and could you somehow be elevated to seating? And obviously, the most difficult bit of this is you're going to have to look as if you have a human appearance, um, which. But um, but could we could you could could the four of you just find a way of elevating him on a throne above yourselves? There we go, okay? So above the likeness of the expanse, there was a likeness, there was a throne on which was a, a, a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire. And downward from his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the rainbow on a cloudy day when it rains. Such was the appearance of the glory all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord's. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard someone speaking to me. I love the phrase, you can put him down. I love the phrase, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I have just spent 28 verses describing to Ezekiel's doing, describing to you the most weird, trippy vision of anything I've ever had. And I'm telling you that it looked a little bit like something that vaguely resembled that. 
But it wasn't like that. And if I was to say that's what the glory of the Lord looked like, I would have to admit, oh, no, 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 that wasn't what it looked like. It wasn't even the likeness of what it looked like. It was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And just the sense of incomprehensibility to the beauty of God when you see him as he is. And to me, the reason I love that chapter, and I love that chapter for many reasons, it's my favorite chapter in the Bible, because it's such a sort of mind-bending, sort of eye-lifting chapter. And the reason I love it is because it just contains so many images that just can't quite be held together. It just doesn't quite fit. It's meant to mess with your mind. And I, I was just in a, we were in a worship time with the, the staff team yesterday. As, um, and we were singing, the first two songs we sang both included the words marvelous and the word wonderful. And I was just thinking about, wow, that, so to say that God is marvelous and wonderful actually means when I see God, I marvel, I wonder. I find myself going, how does that work? That's supposed to happen. That's what it means to say someone is wonderful. Sometimes we almost regard that as a strike against Christian belief. I can't work God out, therefore there must be a problem. Now, I know we know that's not true. What I think, what I want to try and talk about a bit for a few minutes now is the fact that it's not true is supposed to be at the center of our worship. We're supposed to be going, I wonder, I marvel, I cannot fathom that. And if that isn't our response, then often we don't have the experience Ezekiel did, which is when I heard it, I, I fell face down and I heard a voice. And that's obviously he's about to go and tell Israel that the glory of God has left the building. Literally, that's what he's going to tell them. And it's up and it's come across to you on the banks of the Kibar Canal in Babylon. And you've been spent this, your entire history has been pointing to this temple. And now God has left the threshold of the temple and he's come to you. And the name of that city will be called Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there where you are. That's what the book's about. So he's got to know this God breaks boxes and un unravels categories and you cannot grasp him all at once and so what I want to do is just look at I will do the that's that's the the text bit but I just want to do 10 things that if, if you take that image God is when we see him as he is he is comprised of things that we cannot quite fit together in our heads I will now do what PJ's asked me to do and talk about the 10 that amaze me the most the my 10 favorites these aren't in order but I suppose if we were to not this is not all from Ezekiel 1 at all but when we go to uh, throughout the Bible, I think, what are the, what are the ways in which God messes with our heads the most? The things that amaze me, the things that cause me to marvel and wonder the most. Um, and here's a list of them, or at least 10, but not in order of my of order of preference. Okay? The first one, he's, he's the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain, right? which we know. Okay? All of these will be things we've heard before. But this, one, this is one of those things that's meant to be more paradoxical than we often allow it to be. Um, and... I was just I was reading The Voyage of the Dawn Treader recently, which I'd never actually read. I knew as I get the C.S. Lewis story. I knew all the things about Aslan and being the lion and everything like that, and he's not a tame lion. I think always think it's a great picture of lionness, but what I hadn't noticed was how the the lamb image comes at the very, very end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The boat reaches the end of the world, sorry to spoil the ending. Reaper Cheap gets out, the little mouse, and he paddles off, and they all arrive on this sort of shore that seems to be the end of the world. And then Lewis goes, and they came across this little lamb who came along to them and said, come and have breakfast. And they followed, I'd never seen it as a kid, I'm sure I watched it on TV and then just didn't realize the connection. And then they follow this lamb and then it turns out that it is the lion. Now, what Lewis has done is he's made the main deal is we have a lion who, oh, by the way, is a lamb as well. Of course, Revelation does the opposite. Revelation is really, this is a lamb who is also a lion, but is not introduced that way. So in Revelation 5, we have this 
Um, I'm, I'm expect- Revelation 5, 5 to 6, you know the verses. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So he's introduced as a, la- as a lion. And John does this a lot. He says, and then I heard, and so he builds up his expectations. And then it says, and then I saw, and he's like, whoa, that's not what I expected. If you're, this is a nerd sidebar, the 144,000 in Revelation, right? And then I heard, 12,000 from the tribe of this, 12,000 from the tribe, I heard. Then I looked, and I saw a great multitude no one could count. It's the same people, right? I heard, my expectations were built up, wow, this is a bunch of Jews, and then I looked, and it was a great multitude of every tribe and tongue and nation worship, crying out, salvation belongs to our God. That's what he saw when he heard this. Do you see? So John does that in, in Revelation. He's saying, I, I heard this. My expectations were such. And then I looked, and I saw something, which was not at all what I thought. And, of course, that's what's happening in this text. The, I, I heard, weep no more, a lion. I was like, a lion? Wow, what's that look like? And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, carved up, ready for Sunday lunch. The roar and the bleat, the predator and the prey, the raucous ruler, the silent sufferer, same guy. When you sing that, the words, the lion and the lamb, you think, whoa, this is, this is deliberately a juxtaposition of things that should never exist together. And that's one of the things that amazes me most about God. It's one of those things where wonder and mystery go, wow. How? Some of you live in countries where they have lions. I do not. <laughs> I'm from Eastbourne. We don't have lions. Uh, we do have a lot of lambs, though. And I imagine were I to put them next to each other, one of them wouldn't last long. And it's just that moment. Or the, in fact, the scene I often think of is, um, in, in, you know, you've seen Jurassic Park? It's in Jurassic Park where, it's, where they have the goat for, to feed the T-Rex and the T-Rex doesn't want it and they drive off and then the whole system crashes and the fences are down and then the kid goes, where's the goat? And they look across and they just see this little string just sort of flapping in the wind as the goat's clearly been eaten by the T-Rex. You think, that's the mismatch we're talking about here. I, and I heard this voice saying, behold, the T-Rex of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And then I looked and I saw this goat chained to a post, looking as if it had been killed. Meant to get a sense of shock and over-familiarity mustn't lose that for us. So, the lion and the lamb. Uh, second, sort of second thing that amazes me most in God, he's the warrior stained in blood, yet the servant who wouldn't snuff out a smoldering wick. This is, just, this is Isaiah here. So Isaiah's vision of the servant, who he doesn't even, he can't make sense of it himself. You can tell. Because these servant songs just don't fit together like they should. I behold my servant. He will bring forth justice and righteousness. He won't, even when he sees a candle that's going dim, he won't snuff it out. He will find a way of getting it back into flame again. Who is this? Clothed in crimson, coming from Bozrah. It is I, mighty in righteousness, mighty to save. Big fat sword, conquest of Edom. And you think, how... I'm, Isaiah must have had a lot of moments where he just went, how? I'm assuming this got to be a different guy. And as you read Isaiah, you see the, the theme, role, the, sort of the emphasis. In fact, I did a whole three days on this with you. I just kind of caught your eye there, Bones. I thought, I remember doing this. In, but th- th- we did three days on sort of tracking God through Isaiah. Seeing the, but as the book evolves, you see different emphases. In the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated upon the throne, and the angels were calling out, holy, 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 and the whole place shook. And then it sort of goes into this extraordinary vision in the 40 to 55 of this servant guy who's somehow going to, by his suffering, make many to be healed and he's going to be crushed and he's the kind of guy who will just gently enough, tender enough to keep making sure that a smoldering whip doesn't go out. And then in the final 10 chapters, we come back to this anointed conquering king who's just come out and kicked Edom and is now coming back, mighty to save, covered in blood. And Isaiah presents both. And we, 
often, I mean, the, this is the problem. Of course, you're dealing with Jews today who are struggling with Jesus as Messiah. It's because half of that picture has drowned out the other half. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, but not, well, of course, he's going to be crushed for our iniquities. And they're holding the two together. And of course, you've got some Christians who do the other. And that's a sort of a, maybe in our day, a more sort of progressive Christian error. Is, yeah, we've got, we've got this very, very gentle, soft and, you know, guy who's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to suffer. But the idea that he might come swiping through with a sword and take you out is just lost from the picture. And Isaiah's holding both. And he's saying, look at this. That's what's so wonderful about him. How do you reconcile both of these pictures from the same writer? Is the Messiah going to conquer all before him? Or is he going to not even be noticed when you pass him in the streets? And if you did notice him, he is one from whom men hide their faces. Which is he? Well, the answer is he's both. And that's one of the things that amazes me most about God. Jesus brings together the irreconcilable. The deafening voice from the throne when Ben above this throne speaks and everybody falls silent is one like a son of man. That's, what, that's not what you, you've got these living creatures and the swirling fire and things. Where is the noise? Where is the voice that silences the sound like an army on the march? Oh, it's one like a son of man. What, you mean like you and me? Yeah, just like you and me. It's amazing sort of paradox that we're supposed to see in God. So he's the warrior stained in blood, yet the servant who wouldn't snuff out a smoldering wick. Third thing that amazes me most about God, he is fully God and fully man in Jesus Christ. Until recently, I'd never even noticed that there was a verse that summarized this, but Romans 9 verse 5. To them, Israel, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Of whom else, not of whom else should you talk like that? Of whom else has anybody ever claimed you should talk like that? That's what I love. I love some of the things that Christians claim for Jesus. It's not just that they aren't true of anyone else. It's that no one even says they are true of anybody. Nobody would say a sentence like Romans 9 verse 5 of any other, either divine or human being who has ever been. Nobody would ever say, oh, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is God, all of the Pagan religions would say, what are you talking about? Nothing, no gods are not, they're dwelling, as Nebuchadnezzar said, their dwelling is not with flesh. That's not how it works. In fact, that's, not, that's the guy who's advising Nebuchadnezzar because he can't interpret his dream, which is another fun story. But he says, yeah, they, the gods, their dwelling is not with flesh. And then you've got all, of course, Jews and Muslims who would say, you cannot say that someone according to the flesh is God over all, blessed forever, amen. You can't talk like that. Jesus is fully man. Fully God, and we embrace both sides of it. Crown him the Son of God before the worlds began, and ye who tread where he hath trod, crown him the Son of Man, who every grief, grief hath known that wrings the human breast and takes and bears them for his own, that all in him may rest. And then, crown him the Lord of Lords, who over all doth reign, who once on earth the incarnate word for ransomed sinners slain, now lives in realms of light where saints with angels sing their songs before him day and night, their God, Redeemer, King. Crown him both of those guys in consecutive verses. Now, in the version of that song we sing, we don't sing either of them um, for reasons passing understanding. But anyway, so he's fo the fully God, fully man. We know it. But actually, again, that's one of those paradoxes which makes people go, that's surely somehow, because it's a muddle, a strike against Christian belief. And of course, when we see it both together, we find ourselves saying, no, no, no. That's at the heart of what makes him glorious. If he was God, but he wasn't man, he couldn't save us. If he was man, but he wasn't God, he wouldn't save us. He's both. And so we... Rejoice in the fact that he's marvelous in that sense. Wonderful, to be wondered at, marveled at. Fourth, obviously, there's the Trinity. It's a nightmare for the academic. Uh, 
keeps, actually, maybe it's not. It keeps them in work. Like <laughs> Trinitarian theologians, they're still discussing it 2,000 years on. It's a bit of a nightmare for the keep it simple pastor. No, no, no. We, you know, I just want to make sure everything's as simple as possible. So it's kind of like an egg. <laughs> not so much. Um, but for the worshiper, it's a gold mine, isn't it? It's just for the worshiper to come and say, I don't understand. Glory. I don't understand. I am not big enough to understand God. And I was looking at this, um, I was preparing for this conference I'm doing in the summer. And just Genesis, in fact, not, a, not the most obvious place perhaps to get the Trinity, but Genesis 18. The pronouns in Genesis 18. Can I just nerd out on this for a second? The pronouns in Genesis 18. Abraham and Sarah are going to get a promise from God. You're going to have a son. Three visitors turn up at their door. Or is it one? Or is it three? Or is it one? Who knows? These three guys turn up. It's pretty obvious that there's three of them. Um, Genesis 18 too. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, singular, if I have found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. And so it goes on. So they said, do as you have seen fit. And he stood them by the under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you next year and Sarah will have a son. And it goes on like that throughout the chapter. Like, how many are there? What's happening here? And three men arrived. And so he went and made him a meal. And then he said, and then they did this. And you think, I don't understand. Three, one, one, three. Yes. And it's just in the middle of a story that's, for, and for a very long time, would have just looked like a serial grammatical error. And then suddenly, someday, I don't know who it was that first perhaps saw this. I, I think there's a sen- sense in which you could say it was Peter. I don't know. Who's the first person who's, who sees the Trinity as it is and say, you are the Christ, which means anointed by the Spirit, son of the living God. I don't know whether... He, I'm not saying he had Chalcedonian Christology in his head when he said it. I'm just saying when he looked... Something of that statement. You are the Christ, anointed with the Spirit, Son of the living God. But somewhere, somebody got there and began, you know, Jesus on the mountain, baptizing them, Father, Son, and Spirit. Like, wait a second. Three, one, one, three. And you just go way back and think, wow, that must have been quite a moment for them to get the plurality, which means there is relationship and covenant and mutual indwelling and perichoresis and joy and all of that stuff. And the singularity, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one and you shall worship no other, uniqueness, exclusivity. Oh, wow, the reason why we found those two threads in our scriptures is because they were both there all the time. Three, one, one, three, yeah. So that's the fourth thing, the Trinity, that amazes me most about God. Number five, Jesus is the living one who died. The immortal and invisible becomes mortal and visible and humbles himself to death that he might be highly exalted. And again, everybody says, what? So we had, what's the song? I'm going to forget this. This is off the cuff. This is the danger of doing this. The song that talks about immortal, invisible, not the hymn, the immortal, invisible, because that's quite clear. It's talking about God the Father. But there was another song that came out, like riffing off that language a year or two ago. Anyway, it caused, does anyone know the one I mean? No, okay, doesn't matter. Um, But in our church it came out, and it caused a bit of fluttering and scuffling, as these things do, you know, when, you know, when a battle in the grave, and everybody's going, what's there? I don't know. It's that, that sort of worried face that all the theologically minded worship people are like, I don't know if there was a battle in there. Is he talking about death? Ah! You know, it was that kind of a rumbling over the idea that Jesus, that Jesus was sort of immortal, invisible, and whom no one has seen or ever can see, because obviously those statements have been made of God, but Jesus has been seen and all that. So you get these paradoxes, even in the, 
the fact, can you see God or not? You would, I had this, <laughs> this the other day. My son, the lovely thing, there's many beautiful things we've learned about autism. One of the things is that metaphor is a challenge, certainly with the level of autism our kids have. Um, and, so, and it's not really even metaphor. So I'm, Zeke said to me, we were on the decking. It was a lovely sunny afternoon. And, and then Rach said, oh, Zeke, Daddy's going for a minute. I was like, Where, where's Daddy going? I'm just gonna, I want to go and spend a bit of time with Jesus. And he just looked at me as if, I don't know quite how to put it, just a mixture of bafflement and kind of con- for pity for my stupidity. He went, but Jesus is invisible. Because he's learned God is Jesus, and he's learned God is invisible. So it's like, Jesus is invisible. And I'm kind of wanting to go, will he? Well, yes and no. Like, he's had a body, so he's actually, in his essence, now, Jesus isn't invisible. I can't see him. And you, but that's not an easy call for any seven-year-old, and certainly not one who's kind of got learning difficulties. So I was just thinking, do you know what? We'll leave it there. You're right. Daddy just made a mistake and head on out. <laughs> but actually, contained within that little boy's remark is the heart of, how is that possible? The... How has the living one who died, how has the immortal, invisible God become mortal and visible? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. That's the whole point. And so my son is picking up on something that the Wesleys were trying to explain and finding a little bit of a challenge, and so am I. I am the, li- I am the first and the last, Revelation 1.17. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore it even causes flutters when somebody says and it right there's been a big bit of a hoo-ha about this with um Ligonier ministries in the states recently and some of the think their creed and some of the implications some of them said you know god dies should you say that should you say god dies and there's some people who think it's heresy to say it and there's some people who think it's heresy not to say it and the fact that people are still debating that now and by the way personally i think you can say it so long as you're clear what you mean but that's that's a big so long as but Statements like that are still causing us to go, whoa, we cannot quite get ahead around this. What does it mean for the divine human essence to be one? What does it mean for the immortal to die? That logically doesn't make any sense. And it's meant to amaze us. So that, and what we tend to do is, again, the way the church calendar works. I know none of us do church calendars except Christmas and Easter. But when we do Easter, that's, this will happen. You almost got to go, right, so we're going to spend some time thinking about the God who dies and then, hallelujah, we're going to think about the God who lives forever. It's great. It's the way the story works. But we die. it's difficult somehow to think of the immortal as the one who dies, isn't it? I mean, it's just, you don't, on Good Friday, nobody preaches on the immortality of Christ on Good Friday. Maybe we should, I don't know. Just to put that mystery in front of people. Say, how does, what does that mean? He's in himself more immortal, and yet he has died. It's just the staggering beauty of the incarnation. Um, so, that Jesus is the living one who died. That's the fifth one. The sixth one, more familiar territory for most of us who are trying to pastor and preach to people. God is sovereign, but we have real choices. I yeah, I mean, I just, I finished my PhD last week. And uh, effectively, the concluding section is all about warnings and assurance passages. And the concluding section, I'm just talking all about the fact that for Paul, the way that divine and human agency relates is both that God and we are the agent, and that's the only way you can make sense of Paul on perseverance, in my view. And uh, I managed to convince both my supervisor and my examiners of that. So I feel like, okay, we, there's four of us who believe it. And, but just thinking through the, the wonder of there being a God who is both able to affect my choice and I'm able to affect my choice at the same time. And just think, whoa, 
That's not just something that gets me off the hook when people say, but you're a double predestinarian, or but you, you're a fluffy, woolly Pelagian, or whatever. Say, so, no, no, no. This is a both and that the Bible has running right the way through it, so I don't ever feel like I have to be forced to say, well, because God did it, so-and-so didn't do it. Or because they, we've got this seesaw. And you read the, the literature at the highest level of the academics wrestling with this stuff. Many of them not even believers. But they're saying the only way you can make sense of the way Paul expressed that is if he didn't see it like a seesaw, but he saw it as one agent acting within the other. And that's the only way you can make sense of that. It just... the the, the the picture doesn't work if, as God's agency goes up, ours goes down, doesn't make sense of Paul. You just can't do it that way. You can't read him like most contemporary people would naturally want to read him. It doesn't make exegetical sense of this thinker, even if you don't believe he was right. And I find that so exciting. You know, so come on, work out your salvation because it's God who works in you to will and to do. What? If God's the one doing the working, what have I got to do? No, work it out. Who's doing the working? You or me or God? Both. And, you know, by the grace of God, I worked harder than all of them. Great, that was your work. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Oh, great, it's his work. So I don't know, I did it. Just bizarre. You know, Jesus commands my destiny. I say, yes, he does. Oh, well, no, no, it's just plodding through the steps. No, 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 no. And it's just the mystery of how that works, but it's a source of worship. It's not just a, a, a way out of an apologetic problem. It's a source for rejoicing. Look at this. Look at a God who could create a world in which, theologically speaking, compatibilism is true, or at a much more practical level, in which your choices are real and his choices are real, and they often both apply to the same thing. Look at that world. Imagine what kind of a God we must be dealing with if both of those things are true. Seventh. By the way, I've never, of all the others, I've got hymns in mind. Tis mystery all. With this one, I don't have. With that one, I don't have. <laughs> I've never seen anybody go, Tis mystery all. Our choices are real. And yet, God still remains. You know, because <laughs> the Wesleys would never have written it. They were like, Ah, Calvinism, Calvinism. You know, anyway, it would have been quite funny to see. I actually, I was at Westminster Chapel once and um, was flicking through their hymn book because I was a little bored by what was being. This was before Greg. Sorry, Andrew. Um, it, it was, honestly. It was uh, before that time. But I was flicking through the hymn book. And, um, and I just remember there was an interesting bit of note near the beginning. In fact, you might even, they might still use these hymn books. I don't know. Um, but the hymn book had this thing at the beginning saying, in certain places, where the Wesley's Arminianism becomes unduly belligerent, we have edited the lyrics. So they've, like, so they've just gone through and said, Wesley, wrong about that. We'll change it in a reformed direction. Like, you can't do this. Sing it or don't sing it. But don't change it and then pretend it's what he said. It's quite funny. Seventh thing that amazes me most about God, God is omnipresent, yet he dwells specifically in an ark, and then a, temp- a tabernacle, a temple, and now a people, and one day he will fill heaven and earth. And that omnipresence, and what we often call dynamic presence, although the Bible doesn't, but it's a decent phrase, that is a paradox with bells on. God is, ev- and that's again, that, my kids, what are you talking about? God is, I mean, my, my sister-in-law had this with her son, who's my nephew, who's now 10, who's probably about five. Mummy, is God everywhere? Yes. Is God in the house? Is God a, yes. Is God a man? Okay, so now I've got a problem, because there's now an unknown man in my house. Okay, so what they decided as a compromise, and you do this with kids, don't you, is that God is actually a man who's kind of over our house, watching over us. But he's not actually in there. So that's, that's how they try to fudge it, because he's so scared that there's an unknown man in his house. But that, again, that paradox, kids are going, ooh, what? And we're just going, oh, he's omnipotent, he's filled heaven. Do I not fill heaven and earth? I don't, what kind of a house are you going to build for me? I live everywhere. Oh, build me a house. What are you talking, you just told me you don't need a house. No, I don't need a house, but I want to live there. 
I want to specifically and covenantally express my love and power here. And I want you to fence it off and make sure that only these people come in here and only those people come in there and only one guy comes in here once a year and then these people can come here and then one day I'm going to allow those guys to come in but at the moment they can't. And now that dividing wall's gone. They can all come in but it's still here but it's in amongst these people and now go everywhere and take me as far as you can but there's still limitations. Oh, but one day I'm going to come back and heaven and earth becomes a temple and there is no longer any need for the sun because the glory of God has filled everything. You think, wow, that's a... That's a tricky one. <laughs> just how do you hold it? That amazes me about God. Omnipresence, dynamic presence. Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built? To which God's reply seems to be kind of, well, yeah and no. Yes, you cannot contain me, but yes, I have also chosen to dwell there in a way that I don't dwell anywhere else. And as a, again, as a little sidebar, I think when... This is an issue among, in your context, and it is for mine, people, a lot of presence, language being used as sort of, you know, we need to find, we almost, we're seeking the presence. It's often using quite Old Testament imagery, where there's a place where God lives, and it's not here, but we go there. I'm coming up the mountain to find the presence of God, is a little bit like, and so the worship leader leads us up the mountain into the presence of God. God isn't over here, of course, but he is by the time you've sung for 20 minutes. And you think, well, that's just swung onto one side of the paradox and yet at the same time there'd be people who say God is everywhere so there's no particular need to come together to gather with the people of God because God's where you is on the train and you've got that problem as well and say he's both it's both but it's so hard to retain it and you can see why people want to turn it turn each into metaphor God is everywhere but there are some places where I particularly feel him and because I particularly feel him when the music's going and I get goosebumps that's where the presence of God is no but there are places where he dwells more than others, and the church is the primary way that's true. And we've got to hold both. Eighth, God is a God of... You know, there's only ten, so you're fine. It's hot in here, so sorry about that. Um, I'm probably not making it cooler by my, all my shouting. I'm sorry. Um, eighth, God is a God of simultaneous justice and mercy. Now, this is one of those ones which, because it's been partly resolved in the cross, can seem like it's no longer mysterious. Um, and we, it, it remains completely obscure to people who don't know the gospel. They don't understand. I was just reading yesterday about the way Christopher Hitchens, before he died, used to just the thing he hated most about Christianity was the atonement, because you just substitution, one guy dying for another guy, that is just reprehensible, the idea that that could happen. And yet, it's only if you've got both justice and mercy it makes any sense. And of course, modern contemporary people, big emphasis, mercy. Justice, not so much. If you live in parts of the world that have had wars in the last 20 years, big emphasis on justice, maybe mercy, not so much. If you live in the biblical world, both. Come together. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, brackets mercy, he'd passed over former sins. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And you hold, Paul's like, Packing stuff together in Romans 3 just to say, this is God, it's God of both. Look at it. Look at the way you can't get your head around that. Just and the justifier. Micah can urge the people, act justly, love mercy. As if, well, you're going to do those two things together, aren't you? But for us, we're going, but I don't understand how to respond to this criminal with justice and mercy. I don't know how to respond to that pariah nation with justice and mercy. It's like, well, you may not know how to do that, but God does it. And if you look at Calvary, you'll see that's what it says. Justice, mercy. Ninth, on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, there are three main characters. 
the high priest, the sacrificial goat, and the scapegoat. Jesus is all three. Oh, I love this. The thing that amazes me most about God. You read Leviticus 16, and it's very, very clear. You've got your two. In fact, let's do that one as well, just because it's... Um, so, Andrew and Ryan, do you all right being goats for now? Um, sorry. Um, and Matt Hosier, could you just be the high priest, because you've obviously got that sort of mediating between man and God sort of look to you, um, <laughs> I suspect. Just, just come on out. So we got, we got, I'm afraid I'm going to ask you to look as much like goats as possible, as, as into, thank you very much. Um, and so the goats will be brought before the Lord, and thank you, yes, exactly. somebody's even got the horns, that's excellent, yeah? And the bleating is, yeah, very, very good. Ryan's not playing the game to that extent, that's good. Um, and lots shall be drawn. And one of you is, do you want to flip a coin for it? I mean, which one of them is going to be the goat for Azalel? And which one is going to be the goat which is going to meet its un, which sorry end? So which one's which? Who's going to be the scapegoat? I'm going to slaughter him. You're going to slaughter him. <laughs> Good. And then we've got a scapegoat. Okay, so then he goes over. And this is the weird thing. He, he, he lays his hands. And with our atonement theology, we'd assume he lays his hands on the ones he's going to kill. But he actually doesn't. He lays his hands on the one he's not going to kill. Don't read too much into that not, by the way, but it just happens to be true. Lays his hands on him, confesses the sins of the people. See, that's a charismatic way of confessing. I I impute sins to you, O goats, in tongues. And then sends him off into the wilderness. Be gone, Azalel. And then he takes this one. In fact, he might do them the other way around, but it doesn't really matter. And then he slaughters him. And then down he goes. Right, and so, so... a guy in our church illustrated this beautifully. He got balloons, and he burst one balloon, and the other one was a helium balloon, and he went to the door of the church, opened the door, and just let it out into the sky. So it just disappeared as far as the eye could see. It's a great illustration of the two, both hand. One gets burst, one gets sent away. And then so you've got that picture in Leviticus 16, and you think, that's what atonement is. That's how it works. Yom Kippur, we come together once a year, and the priest does that for us. And then you think, Jesus is all three of those guys in the same letter. And you read Hebrews and you think, he, therefore, we have a great high priest who is able, eager to sympathize with our weaknesses. And therefore, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Great. We've got a high priest. He's also the sacrificial goat, the one who has ended up being killed so that we might have life, and the one who through death destroyed the power of the devil. And then he's also the one who goes, and we go with him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. He walks out, literally, out of the holy city shamed. He walks, and the whole, the whole city is walking out with him. Ah, crucified. So you loser. And as they're following him out, and he goes and dies outside Jerusalem, there is a green hill far away outside a city wall. The nation looks on and says, there, that's all our shame and all our disgust pour on you. He dies. He gets excluded and exiled. And at the same time, he then presents the offering that he himself has made and walks through the holy places and says to the Father, there it is. I've made them clean by my own blood. And you think, who possibly could have seen that coming? All three of those characters absorbed in one sacrifice. If you and I had been asked in 100 BC to figure out any model by which all three of those could be represented by the same person, we would never have done it. And that's the gospel. And then finally, tenth, and this is the gist of all the others really, God is unknowable, yet knowable. God cannot be known, and yet God can be known intimately. That's the power of Isaiah 40. You know, to whom then are you going to come? Okay, yeah, you might compare me to an idol. Try that, okay? An idol. Brilliant. Let's do that. What are you talking about? An idol? He doesn't grow tired or weary. He, people who use grow tired and weary, but those that wait on the Lord renew their strength. Look, lift up your eyes on high and see who created all these, the one who summons them all by name. We're not talking about an idol here. 
We can't compare him to an idol. We can't compare him to the planets. We can't say he's a little bit like this, just bigger. A bit like a mountain, just bigger. A bit like a human, just more powerful and with fewer teeth. Or a bit like, I don't know what it might be, but you cannot compare him to anything. And yet, you can know him. I remember that, you know, you probably heard it, that the Bible says, my king is a seven-way king. That's my king. You ever heard that? Yeah. No? that and he's been going for two minutes. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. And you think... I thought you'd been doing a good job until now, but no. The limits of description don't fit this guy. You just can't. What amazes me most about God is not just that those previous nine things are true, but the fact that many, many others are true to the point that you can not know him at all, and yet you know him intimately as your father. Paul in Ephesians 3.19, I pray that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you pray for someone to have an impossible experience? That's what he does, isn't it? This cannot be done. I'm going to pray that you have it anyway. That's a great way to pray for people. Pray that you know something that is unknowable, and yet not just the love of God, but the attributes of God, the character of God, the Trinity. This was the appearance of the lightness of the glory of the Lord. Then when we get our doctrines and our textbooks and our preaching series and our theology straight, we still find ourselves like Ezekiel going, do you know what? I think I've done, I wish I could describe them to you, I'm, but I'm still looking at this picture with the crystal walk and the wheels and the living creatures and the rainbow and the fire and the clouds and the windstorm. It looked a little bit like something that very vaguely resembled that. And when I saw him, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of somebody speaking to me. Father, we're so, so thankful for the kind of God we serve. Lord, we are marvel at this incredible, um, literally amazing God, a God who amazes, a God who, at whom we marvel, a God at whom we wonder. We look at you and we find you, by turns, surprising and astonishing and completely incomprehensible and yet beautifully knowable as our Father. And we just rejoice, we do. We ask that you would help us in this journey of going further and further into the depths of the unknowable yet knowable God illuminate your character to us, Lord. Help us experience joy again as we sing to you now. And we thank you for your presence with us that fills heaven and earth and yet comes to your people specially for now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.